Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. All right. Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to the episode of today. So in this neuroscience brain fact episode of the day, we're going to be talking about endorphins. This is a topic that I've wanted to cover kind of more in detail and more in depth because it's something that I think I've brought up close to a thousand times on this podcast where I talk about, you know, exercising releases endorphins. I kind of always bunch endorphins in with a lot of other feel good neurotransmitters that I speak about regularly and the positive impacts on, you know, your brain, your mood, your brain health, longevity, all of those things. So I thought why not do an episode specifically on endorphins um, just to dive a little bit deeper and also how the exercise-induced euphoria or the runner's high is responsible for growing new neurons or this adult neurogenesis in the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain, which is responsible for a lot of things, including memory consolidation and things like that, which I've, again, spoken about many, many times. If you're an avid listener, you would have heard about the hippocampus a lot. Okay, so we're also going to be talking about endorphins and their role in something called social pain as well as physical pain, mood disorders, memory impairments, strengthening the immune system, pain tolerance, stress relief, and also feelings of euphoria. So they are involved in all these things for the good. So it reduces social pain, it reduces mood disorders, memory impairment, all of the above, and then it increases, it like improves your immune system, increases pain tolerance, all of that. Now, the word endorphin comes from two words, endogenous morphine. So endogenous meaning produced by the body as versus exogenous and morphine, which is a drug that most people are, if they haven't experienced taking it, at least they've heard about what it is. It's an opioid. And historically, we actually humans became aware of morphine receptors in our brains or within the nervous system, I should say, before we actually discovered what endorphins were. So before we even discovered that we ha- that we naturally produced our own version of a morphine, we knew that these receptors existed within our central nervous system. But because of this knowledge of this natural receptor, it showed to us, to scientists, to humans, that maybe the body was producing a form of morphine. And of course, that was later discovered, which turned out to be Endorphins. Okay. So endorphins are produced by the hypothalamus and the pituitary glands, but can also come from other areas as well. Those are just the two main areas of production for endorphins. Um, But of course, like with so many other things, they can be produced like they come from so many other areas of the body. That's what's so frustrating sometimes when you look at certain things when it comes to neuroscience or science of any part of the body, really. So few things are just clear cut. You can look at most things happen here and most of the time this happens, but it's rarely ever a clear cut thing. Now, let's go into more detail with what endorphins actually help with. So, A big one is mood. When you're talking about people that suffer from a mood disorder, one of the main things that they are prescribed, whether you listen to podcasts or whether you go to a doctor, a a clinician, a therapist, one of the main things to prescribe for mood disorders is exercise, okay? Because exercise, you release endorphins during exercise, and that has a very direct, very clear impact, 
positive impact on your mood. It also helps with pain tolerance because it is your body's natural painkiller. It binds to opioid receptors, which I'll go into in a second, and it causes this pain relief effect. Interestingly, which I'm going to again delve into a little bit deeper in a moment, the pain areas of emotional pain and physical pain do overlap in the brain. So what causes uh, like a pain relief effect on physical pain is also doing the same for emotional pain. That's why when you release endorphins, it will help with the physical pain, but it's also going to help with heartbreak and depression and things like that. Uh, It relieves stress and anxiety. It increases your self-esteem. It improves your memory because of the role that it plays on the hippocampus. It increases your cognitive health overall. Uh, It improves your immune system. It reduces inflammation It regulates your appetite. It produces feelings of euphoria, a high, and it improves your levels of confidence. So fucking sign me up for more of that. And if you are somebody that has started exercising regularly, especially because if you exercise regularly all the time, you probably are either used to the feelings or you can just stand up and say, yeah, absolutely. I can notice the difference. But for someone who hasn't exercised that much in their life and then they've started exercising, you might notice a big difference in your overall mood and your overall focus and just how you feel in general. Because for a lot of people, you do experience quite a big day and night difference between how this release of endorphins will positively impact so many facets of your life and how your brain operates and your cognition and all of that. Now, of course, an endorphin is a neurotransmitter, but they're also a peptide hormone. So their role is to deliver signals within the central nervous system and also in the peripheral nervous system as well to, of course, the main thing is to block the perception of pain, but then they do other things as well. And they are released, endorphins are released during exercise, of course, but also during laughter, sex, just doing really fun things in general, meditation, sauna, ice baths, and also eating. So there's a whole range of times when you're going to feel it. However, exercise seems to be one of the the times where you're releasing the largest amount of endorphins as far as because when you're, when you're studying it, exercise is often used to measure endorphin release and all of that because you're getting a nice big spike of endorphins when you exercise. You're putting your body under, especially vigorous exercise or endurance exercise like running, you're going to get this big release of endorphins because you're placing your body under stress and your body responds quite significantly to that stress that you're putting it under. Now, low levels of endorphins in general, if you have kind of like a a bit of an uneven balance of what's going on with your neurotransmitters and everything, low levels of endorphin manifest as depression, anxiety, physical aches in the body, poor sleep, impulsivity, addictive behaviors. Um, And from a neuroscience standpoint, endorphins work on the brain in a very similar way to opioids, which makes sense because it's an endogenous morphine. Now, opioids, as you may know, and you may have heard of before, are a painkiller. Examples of these are codeine, morphine, fentanyl, oxycodone, heroin, and a whole bunch of other ones, but they're kind of the main ones. And all of these versions of opioids have the potential for addiction. Okay. We've got these receptors for opioids within our central nervous system and it's very highly addictive. And one of the reasons why it's highly addictive is because opioids have this thing called a no ceiling effect. If you've heard me talk about it before, I'll quickly go over what that means. A no ceiling effect is where there's no limit to how much 
this drug can continue to create a response within the brain. Okay. So when you look at certain painkillers, there's a lot of SSRIs, for example, antidepressants, there's a ceiling, there's a limit to the actions that they can have on certain, you know, on, on neurons, on cells within the brain. So there's only so much of a response that your body or brain is going to have to these drugs. When it comes to opioids, and this is why they're so addictive and can be dangerous and or slash deadly is because there's this no ceiling effect. The beauty of having a no ceiling effect is that in a medical sense, um, you know, obviously professionals, medics, doctors, they are able to administer the correct dosage for what someone is experiencing. So if someone is under an obscene amount of pain, the beauty of this no ceiling effect is that you're able to administer a higher dose to get a higher response. Okay. So it is the drug of choice for patients who have severe pain or escalating pain as well. So there's always a benefit to this no ceiling effect, but when it comes to people trying to manage the use of these drugs on their own, Um, it can be catastrophic, obviously, as we've seen with, you know, addiction and all of that. So that's a little rundown of exogenous morphine or opioids, I should say. But what we do understand about it is when these things bind to these receptors, when when these opioids bind to the receptors, they have an analgesic effect, which is a painkiller effect, but they also then release dopamine. So you're getting this two-pronged effect going on in the brain. You're, You're reducing pain which feels good. And then you're increasing this release of dopamine, which feels even better. So hence addiction, big time when it comes to these things. And it also explains why you get into these really positive moods when the binding occurs. So if you're looking at endorphins, it also explains not only are you, if you go for this massive run, your body's trying to, it's releasing endorphins to have this kind of painkiller effect because you're putting your body under stress to an extent, releases these chemicals, the endorphins, they bind, it reduces the pain. And then on top of that, it releases dopamine. So you finish the run, you finish anything that you know is either intense or a lot of endurance and you probably 10, 15 minutes into it. Some people it's sooner, but for me personally, probably 10, 15 minutes after the run, I legitimately feel euphoric. I just, oh, I could just bask in that feeling and just sit there and relax and I feel calm. I feel good. I feel like I could take on all these tasks in front of me. I just feel unbelievable. Um, And I'm sure a lot of you people can, a lot of you listeners can relate to what I'm saying about that feeling. Um, Now, the beauty about endorphins, of course, is that because the body is releasing them and because it's regulated by the body and our, our, our nervous system is so much better at regulating things than our conscious addictive mind is or subconscious mind, I should say, it is not addictive to the extent that like an opioid would be. It's extremely safe. You're not going to get these like, you know, lows afterwards or these highs, that only happens with the synthetic version. But when you're talking about endorphins or endogenous morphine, it's very safe. And also, again, going back to that no ceiling effect, if you're someone that has experienced this really high you know, dose of a morphine, for example, or an opioid, you're not going to get such a high effect with endorphins because our body's not going to be producing these insanely high amounts to the extent that you could be getting, you could be ingesting from the drug form. So we've explained why it works as a painkiller. It binds to the receptors. It has that pain relief, you know, feeling. 
But I also want to go into emotional pain management, okay, which is also called, we're going to refer to it as social pain, and that's what it's referred to in a lot of studies when they compare physical pain and social pain, okay? And social pain is the painful experience of actual or potential psychological distance from other people or social groups. This could also, heartbreak also falls into that. So it could be abandonment, it could be rejection, it could be, you know, this social anxiety and then this fear that we feel. There's many things that fall under the category of social pain. And of course, physical pain is identified as unpleasant feelings or um, experiences associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Now, there are two theories that are going on within the brain. We've got the pain overlap theory and the social pain theory, and they kind of both run concurrently. One does not cancel the other one out. So the first one, the pain overlap theory, claims that social pain exists on the existing circuitry for physical pain. And the second suggests that being separated by groups or other people is great enough, is a great enough threat which challenges our survival. So this innate need for community in order to survive and in order for mankind to survive. So both of these theories exist side by side and they don't cancel each other out, like I said. Um, But to explain it a little bit further, studies have shown that if you are experiencing social pain, your tolerance for physical pain goes down. So it kind of makes it seem like there's perhaps a threshold of pain on either end. And it's almost combined. So if you're feeling, and then the same goes and vice versa. So if you are experiencing a lot of physical pain, then your tolerance for emotional pain also goes down. Now, if you reduce the pain experienced socially, so if you're limiting the feelings of loneliness, if you're increasing connection, you also reduce the pain experienced physically. So if you are, for example, unwell, if you're sick, uh, let's say you're, you're let, let's, let's talk about something that's relatively acute, like the flu, your body's in pain, you're aching. If on top of that, you're experiencing emotional pain or social pain, it's going to be experienced a lot worse. You're really going to be suffering. But if you're experiencing the flu, if you're really sick, but you're having all this like really positive bonding, people caring for you, people coming and showing that they care, you're actually going to not experience the pain as severely. And that goes for all kinds of physical pain. Now, another really interesting paper showed that when you hold your partner's hand while experiencing physical pain, it actually helps reduce this pain perception versus when holding a stranger's hand. Now, I'm not sure with the study what that would be versus holding no hands at all. I'm not sure because the study compared a stranger versus someone who you love and are connected to. But it would be interesting to see if it's even lower if you're not holding anyone's hand. But it shows that you've got this like connection, this bond with this person, and that is what helps you get through the hard times. That's why obviously your community and your inner circle is really, really important when you are going through hard times. Um, so if you know the, the same thing goes for if if you can be there for someone when they're going through hard times, it's actually going to reduce their physical perception of pain as well. So be there for your fucking inner circle, in a nutshell. However, interestingly, some studies have shown that if the pain is chronic, if it is ongoing and not severe or acute on either side of these things, then it's shown that the body sometimes will not always, but sometimes may enter in this protective numbing state as a way of numbing the pain. And this could might be due to the fact that the brain kind of becomes more tolerant, as I've spoken about on so many episodes when it comes to 
different chemicals that we put into our bodies, including endogenously produced chemicals that we create in our body, we can create a tolerance to certain things. So if you're chronically, chronically, chronically exposed to pain, then you are likely to have some sort of a numbing effect and it's a tolerance, but it's definitely not this euphoric happy feeling. But what definitely does seem to be the case is that both physical and social pain rely on this shared neural circuit. So there's several studies that have shown that when people take a painkiller, one one of the studies that I read was acetaminophen, which is a pain inhibitor, there was this reduced activity in regions that would normally be active during social rejection. So you had this like reduction of this activity in physical pain, but also in emotional pain. In addition to this, over-the-counter analgesics, so over-the-counter painkillers, have also been found to produce this emotional painkilling effects, which is, I think, really interesting. So there was this placebo control study, which is where you've got one group of people that are being administered the drug, another group of people being administered a placebo. Neither group knows which one they're getting, if it's just a sugar pill or, or like an empty pill versus the the medication. So there was a placebo controlled study, which looked at two groups. One was on placebo. One was on acetaminophen, which is a non-opioid painkiller. And they got them to report social pain on a daily basis. In addition to these self-reports, they were also able to, to observe what was going on in the brain by using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRIs. And this was to measure the level of activity within the brain as well. And the acetaminophen actually reduced the neural response to social rejection in the same regions that are associated with distress caused by social pain. Okay. So these include the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, the anterior insula, and a whole bunch of other regions as well. So compared to the placebo group, this painkiller showed reduced neural response and reduced behaviors associated with social rejection pain. So we're seeing that for sure, there's definitely somewhat at least of an overlap in the brain regions that take care of physical pain and social pain. However, it doesn't say if these areas are exactly the same or if it's just an overlap. So again, every time you hear, and this is not just with me, just I'm just going off on a little bit of a side note here. Every time you hear people make these claims and these statements about science and all these things, you have to understand that it's rarely ever this universal, all-encompassing claim. So when you say there's an association, it doesn't mean that the two things are exactly the same and that's it. It doesn't mean that one has to definitely cause the other. You've got to always listen to scientific evidence with an open mind and understand that it's not always all-encompassing. So when we, you hear something like this, where I'm referring to an overlap, it can still mean that there are regions that are independent from that overlap that only look at social pain or only are involved in social pain versus physical pain. That it's not made 100% clear in the studies. Now, other studies have shown that pain relief effects of endorphins can, in some cases, be greater than morphine, up to two times greater than morphine. Now, I don't know looking at these studies, how big the dose of morphine we were talking about, because I did just explain that morphine does have a no ceiling effect, but it is really interesting to see how strong the effects of endorphins can be on the, on the human body. Now, endorphins can also be broken down into different categories. The one I'm going to talk about now is beta endorphins. So this is what causes this exercise-induced euphoria also known as the runner's high, but you can also feel it not just running, but I think it's just really, 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 I love running. Just just try running, guys. It's the best. And you feel this way. It's unbelievable. So there's three types, but beta, 
beta endorphins are the most studied, the most understood, and what seems to be the most common as well. So pain relief is also due to beta endorphins specifically binding on these mu receptors. That seems to be, you know, that they bind to four primary opioid receptors, but the mu receptors seem to be the main one that beta endorphins are binding to, and it's found all over the peripheral nervous system as well. So when binding occurs, it prevents this release of substance P, among other things, which is necessary for pain signals to be conveyed. So you're you're binding, you're preventing this release of the P substance. GABA release is also suppressed. Okay, so we have, and then when that gets suppressed, which is inhibition, so when you're suppressing this inhibition, then we're also getting an increase in dopamine, which is reward, pleasure, all of that. So you're getting this multi-pronged thing going on when you're getting beta endorphins binding to these mu receptors. Now, the last thing that I wanted to cover was this idea of neurogenesis in the hippocampus region, or the hippocampi, I should say, because your brain has two halves and you've got two almost everything, not everything, but almost everything. So there's more and more evidence to show that beta endorphins play this key role in mediating hippocampal neurogenesis. Neurogenesis meaning the creation of new neurons. Okay. So this signaling occurs during exercise specifically. Okay. So it's not that you can't have neurogenesis occur outside of exercise. You can, there's other things that can cause it, but the neurogenesis that is brought on by beta endorphins occurs specifically when exercising. Okay. So it is the beta endorphins that seem to explain this mechanism behind why exercise promotes adult neurogenesis and overall brain health. So exercising also increases dendritic length, which is so your your neurons have axons and dendrites. The dendrites are kind of the receivers of the signals from the other cells. The axon sends the cell, the, the information kind of gets propagated down the axon and it lands on dendrites. If you're increasing dendritic length, you're then increasing the ability of creating more connections within cells because you're, you've got a, a bigger web to reach other cells, which is obviously a great thing. Um, spine density, you've got spines on the dendrites. You're increasing spine density this is occurring in the hippocampal neurons. And you're also promoting a release of these trophic factors, which aids in more growth within connectivity. So synaptogenesis, neurogenesis, all of those things, such as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which I've mentioned many times, and that is also released when exercising. So the evidence that we have, there's this evidence that we have that endorphin release influences neurogenesis. And there's this mice model study that was done and they did this beta endorphin knockout model. So basically where you knock out and you obviously do this with mice and not with humans, but you can specifically knock out certain things in these animals. So you knock out this beta endorphin, it's blocked in the mice. And in those mice, it prevented them from having an increase in the cell proliferation when running on a wheel versus the other group. Okay. So it's this specific release of beta endorphins that's causing this neurogenesis when exercising. Now, interestingly, when they weren't exercising, you still did see some levels of neurogenesis going on, which shows that there's multiple systems at play that contribute to the growth of new neurons within the hippocampus. But endorphins were responsible for creating neurogenesis specifically during exercise. So it shows that when the mice, including the knockout 
group of mice versus the the control group when the or the wild type when the mice were compared not exercising they had similar growth even though you've knocked out there's been the 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 beta endorphin knockout mice you've got similar neurogenesis when they're not exercising and when they're exercising the non-knockout group the wild type they're getting more neurogenesis because of the beta endorphins and the other group is not which goes to show that if you exercise regularly intensely endurance wise, you are getting this positive effect on your hippocampus. It is so fucking good for you. I can't, I can't stress about it enough for many, many, many reasons. Exercise is also good for, I mean, I could go on. How long do you, how fucking long do we have? But what, another reason why exercise is so good for you is that it increases circulation and the strength of all your little blood vessels and capillaries within the brain which means that you're able to get oxygen to all parts of the brain for longer in your life. So it's increasing longevity. It's increasing the health span of your brain. If you're someone that's like, oh, exercise just isn't me, just get your heart rate up every single day for a couple of minutes. You don't have to flog yourself at the gym. There's so many ways that you can exercise and it's kind of linear. Once you start, you can get a little bit better. You can increase your endurance. You can do a little bit more, but I just can't I just can't stress enough how important exercise is for brain health. Everybody just do something, something for your brain health. It will impact your mood. It will impact your focus. It will impact your, it will reduce your stress levels. You won't get sick as much because it's positively impacting your immune system. You're going to sleep better. Your, I mean, I could go on forever. Your, your longevity, your health span, not just your life span, but your health span. You get feelings of euphoria, confidence, self-esteem, all these things. Like honestly, what, what pill can you buy that, that does that? Not one. Because when you, even when you look at opioids, you're looking at opioids as binding to that receptor and having pain relief, but they're not giving you all these benefits that endorphins are giving you. So there's just a an in-depth rundown of endorphins and why you should be doing things that are going to increase your levels of endorphins, including the ice bath, sauna, if you have access to it. Cold shower also will increase, will give you a rush of endorphins. You don't have to... Um, you don't have to have a, like a freezing cold ice bath with actual ice cubes and all of that. So it's it's definitely accessible to anyone. Bang, cold shower for a couple of minutes. I know a lot of people might not want to do that, which is fine. Um, but there's so many other things that you can you can do as well. So not to mention that the positive effects it has on mood disorders as well. So hopefully this has inspired you and it's gotten you in the mood to go for a little jog or do a couple of star jumps right here on the spot. Just anything. Um, yeah. I just want you guys getting passionate about your brain health and how that will directly impact your emotional well-being, your happiness, your emotional success, um, and even just your career success as well because you're more focused, calm, and creative. Good times. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode. Love talking about this shit as if you haven't already noticed. Beans, I love you so much. Just a shout out to a whole bunch of my global beans. I want to shout out to my beans in, um, in Amsterdam in Dublin, in Toronto, and also in Buenos Aires. There's a whole bunch of global beans around the world. Um, love you so much. And as always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke. 